are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are talking about ayahuasca, mescaline, and ibogaine. These are growing in popularity, and so you're going to hear about them. Ayahuasca, this is so interesting. One of the articles even that came from the New Yorker, you were telling me about it, the drug of choice for the age of kale. A lot of this came from NIDA. This came from several articles in PubMed. And then there's been a couple of lectures, several lectures from CSAM and ASAM in the past couple of years. This isn't something that you're seeing patients coming to you inpatient for detox, but definitely our emergency room physicians, you're going to probably encounter this, or you're going to see patients that have gone for these retreats, right, Paula? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you hear about retreats being held all over the country and in other countries, especially in South America, Peru, Costa Rica, Mexico. It's becoming increasingly popular. You can't really go too far from anyone in their 20s or 30s without hearing about someone who's been on an ayahuasca retreat recently. And I get asked pretty frequently by my patients, especially those with alcohol use disorder, about whether or not ayahuasca would be helpful for them. And so I think it's important for us to be educated and to know about ayahuasca and what it is, what it does, what the risks are, what the possible benefits are. And it's a fascinating fascinating group of substances. I mean, it's a tea, so it's it's made from a bunch of plants. But uh, what's going to happen in the future with this is profoundly fascinating. And hopefully we have more research that emerges about its potential benefits in light of the possible risks. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like Paula said, this is a tea that comes from typically Brazil and South America. It contains some powerful psychedelic substances. I think so. it's typically made from the bark of the banister. Stereopsis KPI vine, which contains beta carboline alkaloids, which are psychoactive, and the psychotria, psychotria, which is, I think, a very interesting name, viridus shrub. Uh, there could be lots of other plants that are added in to make different concoctions. So, depending on the person preparing the brew and where you are in the world, you can have different plants added in. There's lots of different plant ingredients that could be included in the production of ayahuasca, especially like. Justica pectoralis or Brugmansia datura. But generally, when you read about ayahuasca, it's typically always the combination of the Benisteriopsis and the Psychotria shrub and then other ingredients so that you get this mixture of, of the two main chemical compounds, which seem to be important for the psychoactive effect. And what you're getting is that dimethyltryptamine, DMT, and we'll go into more detail on that DMT, and it's monoamine oxidase inhibitors. That's what makes up ayahuasca. This goes back for centuries. This was used by indigenous shamans for the purpose of spirit communication, magical experiences, healing, religious rituals by several South American countries. And then it was kind of incorporated into what we saw more recently, folk medicine. We've seen this and even in the U.S. Brazilian churches used it routinely kind of to foster these kind of spiritual cultures or healing reasons, but now we're seeing this also recreational use. And 
it's this, it's like what Paula said in her introduction, it's this huge movement in retreats and social media. That's why this needs to be on our radar, kind of watching for this. It's pharmacology. How does this work? And that kind of makes sense. And we'll get into like the phases and the cycle of that ayahuasca experience. These also can have some long acting neuroprotective and neuroregenerative effects. So that's from the carbolins. There was one study. So Paula, did you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I think, well, it looks like ayahuasca, specifically the carbolines, which come from the Venesteriopsis plant, may have some effects on neural cells in terms of regeneration by promoting uh, BDNF, so brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And there was a test tube study that showed exposure to one of the carbolines. There's several carbolines that are that you can extract from that vine, but one of them called harmine, one of the main ones, increased the growth of human neural progenitor cells by over 70% in these test tube studies in only four days. That's pretty impressive. And I think a lot of these health retreats are touting this, that it's it's kind of, it's neurotropic effects in a way. And uh, so not only does it have immediate and acute psychoactive effects, but some of the chemicals in ayahuasca have these neurogenerative, neuroregenerative effects for long-term brain healing and cell protection. But that's not proven in animal or human studies. We already talked about this. It's typically in a tea, kind of this reddish brown tea. Its onset is fairly quick, typically within 30 minutes, peaks between 45 to 120 minutes. And most people are then at their baseline between four to six hours go through this process. So you have the early effects, which is sometimes with that initial effect of where you can kind of see some pretty intense vomiting and and diarrhea and then some of the and those are sometimes some of the risks associated with it this some of the times you can also see panic and psychosis that's where there has reported deaths with the psychosis like some reported seizures it's difficult because you're sometimes not aware what sometimes people are mixing or what plants are being used right the deaths that have occurred have all been unworthy during clinical trials and the ones that were associated this typically was with psychosis. Traditional use always recommended a cleansing diet of plant-based foods two to four weeks prior to use. And that's a little bit related more to that MAOI inhibitor use. It seems like for the last like half the century, traditionally a lot of the, especially in European and North America, they have not done those cleansing diets. And there was one study I read that they did not see a difference in effect, like more adverse effect in one versus the other. So trying to reduce those kind of negative effects, it it really seems to be related to the drug, not necessarily not doing that cleansing diet, if that makes sense. Yeah, that is interesting. I think exactly like you said, that they're trying to avoid food and drink that are tyramine rich, just yes. so that you don't have an interaction with the MAOI effect of the ayahuasca. And I also think it's been part of the historical ceremony and physical and mental preparation to prepare to prepare yourself to participate kind of ritual part of it, participate in a vegan diet, not actively eat any animal products as a part of the cleansing and mind cleansing to prepare the mind and the body. Um, so because not only does it include avoiding certain foods, but they 
they also, traditional ayahuasca ceremony advises that people abstain from sexual activity too. Yes. Uh, for about two weeks before the ceremony too, as well. Okay. So other just general effects that you're going to see, physical signs that you will see, increased blood pressure, obviously the severe vomiting, which is induced by the tea, diarrhea. This causes hypothermia, so increased body temperature. And then this is the effect that people are wanting, but you're going to see a profoundly altered state of awareness and perception of what people describe otherworldly imagery, hallucinations, altered perception. Typically, those effects can last anywhere from 120 minutes to even returning to baseline. Like we said, about four to six hours. Why do people want to do this? What What is the purpose? What are they after? Well, it's been touted to be a rapid treatment for depression. People literally come out the other side with relief of severe depression. It's been used for treatment of PTSD. I mean, these are all things that it's been says that it does. Obviously, there's no clear indication for it. And then, of course, for addiction, specifically alcohol, crack, cocaine, and nicotine. And people report that it, they have an intense introspective experience and they come away with an increased ability to look into their life and resolve anger and recognition of the root of their depression, their trauma, and their addiction. With each subsequent IR ayahuasca treatment that deepens, although not every uh, ayahuasca treatment is favorable and people may have multiple averse trips or experiences before they even have one positive one, but they seem to keep going back, have an experience that is profound. And there have been a few studies that have showed reduced use of substances after ayahuasca use. There was a study published in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs in 2016 that did a systematic literature review in both animals and humans after the use of ayahuasca and they did pub a PubMed literature review. They showed that in the five animal studies that were reviewed, all five studies showed improvement in drug seeking and drug using behaviors in those five studies. And then they reviewed five human studies and showed significant improvement in substance use parameters in four of the five studies. And you know, there's there's needs to be more studies done on this substance. And that's why there's a plea into the FDA to make it a research chemical available for study because it's not only interesting to people who are involved in substance use treatment, mental health treatment, but it also is a substance of interest for cancer treatment and Parkinson's disease. Really interesting on the variety of diseases there that we are trying to treat. Okay, the pharmacology of ayahuasca is interesting. It contains DMT, which is a powerful hallucinogen, which agonizes 5H2TA receptors and beta carbolines. It's very short acting and undergoes first pass metabolism and it's often combined with plants or parts of the plant that have an MAOI inhibitor. And the effect is to potentiate and prolong the effect of the hallucinogenic effect. And it, interesting, Paula, and you can talk about this some more, is, and I think this is where all these retreats are coming up and that's what they tout is it's suggesting that ayahuasca may have some long acting neuroprotective effects. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I think just been reading about this, but obviously ayahuasca has a benefit how to benefit or, you know, it can be terrible experience in the moment. So you never know what you're going to get. This is much like any hallucinogen. You just don't know what you're getting when you go 
and taken hallucinogen. People might have a very positive experience. People may have a terrible, adverse experience and experience panic and anxiety or feel like they're being, they're going to die. And that's particularly true for ayahuasca. When you read of reports of ayahuasca, it seems like people can have multiple terrible trips and then have one good one. But there do seem to be some neuroprotective and neuroregenerative effects from the concoction. And this might be from stimulation of BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. This is probably from the carbolines that are in, come from the, the Banisteriopsis KPI vine. There's a test tube study that showed that exposure to one of the carbolines, there's several carbolines that are extracted from that vine, but one of them called harmine or harmine, it increased the growth of human neural progenitor cells by over 70% in four days. And these cells, these progenitor cells generate the growth of new neural cells. You know, this is where ayahuasca is touted as a nootropic agent. And people are saying that they feel different, they come out of it, and they feel that they have increased focus and calm and capacity um, moving forward after one or several ayahuasca treatments. So this is not robustly studied. And we don't know why we don't understand there's definitely room for more research to back this up. But something in the pharmacology relating to these alkaloids is fascinating in terms of its protective, you know, medical effect on the brain. And another interesting thing is people who use ayahuasca routinely, it's again, like LSD and psilocybin doesn't lead to physical dependence and addiction. We don't see people necessarily abusing hallucinogens to the point that they're addicted to them that doesn't cause a physical dependence syndrome. They may may get stuck in that cycle, but we don't see people with tolerance and withdrawal. Certainly see people with substance use disorder who get in patterns of using and abusing hallucinogens and it's disrupting their brain chemistry with very, very significant risk. And I think we're seeing this with ayahuasca. And it's interesting when you read about ayahuasca, there's all these warning signs that people with a history of mental illness should not use ayahuasca because of the risk of stimulating panic, severe anxiety, paranoia, and psychosis. But the very people who seem to be attracted to doing ayahuasca are people who are trying to treat some kind of underlying mental illness or addiction. So that's that's kind of interesting. I think they're just trying to cover their cover their bases there. But there's a lot of risk going into these unregulated retreats, a lot of them now popping up and being held and run by people who are inexperienced, don't know what they're doing, don't understand the plants being used, don't respect and understand the ceremony and ritual that's been passed down century over century by the the people in the Amazonian areas of Brazil. Instead, they're just bringing ayahuasca to their own practice. And I think we have to be careful around that. And we have to warn our patients that they may be going into this with some, and who knows what they're going to be getting and who knows what the pharmacology and the pharmacokinetic effect is going to be on their brain with their certain neurochemistry response. And, and that's kind of how I approach hallucinogens when people ask me, should I do mushrooms? I'm really interested and I want to try LSD. I mean, typically the patients we see have already done these things if they want to, but for people who are interested in using these substances for treatment of their substance use disorder, we just don't have enough data yet to recommend that. Yes. I don't, can we be any more clear? We cannot recommend these at this time. You know, certainly we need more research, but I don't want anyone taking this information and using it as positive that I'm going to go try one of these untested or or go to one of these retreats and certainly have a negative outcome or even death. Yeah. I don't want anyone to harm themselves. Now, DMT is a, a straight DMT is a 
different story. I mean, a lot of promise with ayahuasca in terms of what could it be useful for. However, we know that many people have died in the hands of ayahuasca ceremony. I mean, there's all kinds of reports you can hear. There's a person who was murdered by the participant right next to them who became so psychotic, they they killed the participant next to them during the ceremony. And there are reports of people dying by seizure, etc. But I've certainly had plenty of patients in an inpatient setting who have had big problems with DMT. So I think we're going to talk about DMT really quickly as its own isolated drug that is used and abused. Yes. And this is often used by people who are just generally hallucinogen seekers or poly substance users. And it is not benign because it's the concentrated alkaloid that is that responsible for hallucinations from ayahuasca, but very, very powerful and has a lot of known adverse effects. So do you want to talk about DMT a little bit? Yeah. And this is a this is also taken usually in a different form. I mean, I guess some people could use it as a tea, but it's typically smoked or injected. If it's used as a tea, its onset can be in about 30 minutes. If it's injected or smoked, you're going to have a little bit more rapid onset. Its effects are very similar as you see with other hallucinogens. You get intense visual hallucinations, depersonalization, auditory distortions, and altered perception of time and body image. Physical effects, and this is what we need to be aware of, is hypertension, increased heart rate, severe agitation, seizures, dilated pupils. We've seen quite a few deaths associated with this. At high doses, you see cardiac arrest. You know, from NIDA, people frequently co-use drugs. There's concerns like obviously people frequently will use with alcohol. It's not really known. Certainly it's not safe. If you combine it with other stimulants, you know, if you think about cocaine, methamphetamines, just think about what that's going to do on your circulatory system. Certainly treatment for this obviously is our supportive care. You're thinking about your ABCs, your airway, and it's not really known if right now if it's determined that this is considered to have like a dependence, but we do see people that tend to use this sometimes frequently, like we do see some other drugs, but I haven't seen like any like dependence or withdrawal syndrome reported in the literature. Yeah, so DMT, I agree with you, Darlene, really dangerous. The people that I saw, I mean, they were they were in trouble. That's why they were admitted to an inpatient psychiatric hospital, typically because of psychosis and also substance use disorder to other substances that had kind of gotten out of control. What's interesting, and this is where the field of psychedelic medicine is really emerging and can be confusing for those of us in substance use treatment is we don't have a lot of good research to back up the use of these substances in a therapeutic way, but there is research being done. And so when patients come to us and say, well, you know, you just tell me that DMT is completely bad, but I've heard that DMT is good for depression. We it, It's good to know what's going on. And there are studies that are being funded right now by NIDA and by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse. There are grants that are funding some research for the use of synthetic analogs of DMT for 
treatment of treatment-resistant depression. And they're fascinating. They're being published in the American Journal of Drug and Alcohol Abuse out of research being conducted at Johns Hopkins. And much like research now on you know, psilocybin, it shows that maybe in combination with therapy or in a ceremonial group setting, synthetic 5-MeO-DMT might be associated with improvements in depression So and anxiety. Who knows? The literature might come and support the use of these substances. However, right now we just don't have enough to back up recommending the use of, especially self-dosing of um, hallucinogens, which is what we see our particular patient population like to do, right? They hear microdosing and then it's like, well, I'm just going to go, you know, use a bunch of psilocybin on my own to see the effect, which is not really the point. But I think it's interesting to see what's going to happen with DMT. But for now, I'd stay clear and advise our patients to stay clear of any kind of DMT product. Yeah, I mean, you bring up such a good point, Paula. And do we support research? Absolutely. I don't want any patient taking away from this that I'm going to go out and try these things. No. A really brief side note here. The history is so interesting, and this could be its own episode itself. This fallout from psychedelics, I mean, this kind of came from the 1960s with this backlash, fear, and hysteria from the research on Leary and his colleague Richard Alpert from Harvard. And this, sorry, this was Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, but they really started this research on the psychedelics, but really went off the rails a little a little bit. And this was also just the culture at the time. We kind of had this whole counterculture. And unfortunately, this negativity towards all drugs kind of just squashed the psychedelic research. And then that's when it went underground because they kind of did some unscientific research. And then that kind of just really got a lot of bad press and really unfortunate. It's taken so many years to be able to restart some of this research. Yeah, it is interesting. Okay, mescaline also known as peyote here in the United States, is a naturally occurring psychedelic, and it occurs in the San Pedro cactus in Peru, in the it comes from the Bolivian torch cactus or the peyote cactus. And there's also several other species of cacti. It's typically going to be used either fresh or dried into buttons. People will make it into a powder and then put it into a capsule. Proto-alkaloid is 3,4,5-trimethoxyphenylethylamine. You're going to be swallowing this, chewing it, or they soak it in water, especially if, if you're eating it fresh, drinking that. You know, that does not sound good to me. Actually, none of these really brews do, right, Paula? <laughs> what are the effects? Obviously, the hallucination-type altered perception effect is what people are seeking. They describe feelings of enhanced perception, hallucinations, euphoria, but it can cause or enhance anxiety in many people as well. This causes hyperthermia, which means increased body temperature, increased heart rate, blood pressure, sweating. And then you get these feelings of, you know, uncoordinated body movements, so ataxia, flushing. There's no commercial uses. As we know here in the United States, it is legalized within our indigenous people. What do they call it? They call it a mescaline card. I can't remember like the legality. 
but it does also have a recreational use as well. I think it's worth saying that peyote has been used for, or at least we know about it, been used for over five and a half thousand years yeah. as part of a spiritual and ritualistic integral part of the Native American culture. And it is still used and is an important part of the Native American church, which has a very active membership in the Navajo Nation. And it's regarded as part of their you know, spiritual insight ceremonies and is used to have insight and spiritual guidance and for journeying. And then also believed by some American Native American tribes um, for curative properties for other health conditions, such as pain and fever, rheumatism, etc. It's and what's interesting is if you look at the data coming out of the use of peyote in Native American people, there's very there's not very many or very, very few adverse effects when you use it in this when it's being used in the traditional sense. Don't see evidence of psychosis and you don't see other health or adverse reactions. And they did a big study of this in 2007, looking at four year, they followed a four year longitudinal cohort of people in the Navajo Nation, and it did not seem to be associated with hallucinogen persisting perceptive disorder or psychosis or physical dependence. It does have acute adverse effects like you just mentioned, but it just begs the question of the use of peyote in and of itself with and the importance of it for Native American people and also the use of peyote in the context of ritual and ceremony. And I think we need to pause and acknowledge its importance as part of a spiritual practice in the Native American people. And I have to say, I haven't had too many people in the substance use world who've used or abused peyote. I mean, they've used peyote, but they don't go beyond that. It's not something that becomes an area of compulsive use or craving. Have you seen that? Which is interesting because this is the only one besides like LSD that I found. And this comes from NIDA that talks about like long-term effects and that reports a tolerance effect, which would suggest could this be one where people could increase use. But I agree, I have not found where I've seen any like habitual use. You'll have some patients that report like other hallucinogens, they've, they've used it. This this was just an interesting thing, like NIDA reports that, and we, I think, have talked about this before with LSD, but mescaline and LSD are both cited to have some long-term effects where you can see some persistent psychosis, which manifests as kind of visual disturbances, disorganized thinking, paranoia, mood disturbances. And this condition, which we've described before, is called hallucinogen persisting perception disorder, or HPPD. Those can sometimes be mistaken. So if you see that, that wouldn't be what you would go to, right? This is often in medicine, if somebody presented with those, it's mistaken for a neurological disorder, stroke or brain tumor, or they're labeled with a psychiatric disorder. The tolerance builds up with repeated usage lasting a few days, but it doesn't really go into how long or often you have to use to develop that and mescaline can cause a cross tolerance with other serotonergic psychedelics that goes into LSD and, and psilocybin. So if you have someone who is really using a lot of other psychedelics, I think that's where you're more at risk persistent psychosis. Yeah, it's fascinating. 
fascinating that you can definitely see long-term effects of mescaline in other settings, but not in the setting of ceremonial use. Ibogaine, Paula, tell us about that. Yeah, so Ibogaine is a fascinating plant. It's a naturally occurring psychedelic and dissociative compound that comes from the root bark iboga, which root bark iboga comes from the plant tabernanthi iboga. And this plant is uh, historically grown in parts of Africa, in the rainforest of Africa, in countries like Gabon, discovered and used probably for centuries, but discovered in the 1980s when people were studying the pygmy tribes and found that this was being used for all kinds of purposes. And it's touted touted for its use in treating and curing addiction and spiritual journeying. However, it's associated with death and it has this very high kind of odds ratio where there's been at least 19 fatalities recorded from 1990 to 2008 associated with the use of ibogaine, six of these from acute heart failure or cardiopulmonary arrest. And we think this is probably from its effect on the QT interval because it does cause QT prolongation syndrome. And it's hard to know, however, how many ibogaine treatments have not had adverse outcomes, but it is a risky plant in terms of what the chemical does. The anti- addictive properties were discovered in the 1950s. It was used in Western medicine in the early part of the 1900s and actually became a a substance of interest in the 1950s by the CIA. It's kind of had lots of different groups of people interested in it. One for its psychoactive properties because of its psychedelic and dissociative characteristics. Two, it has some kind of performance enhancing properties. So athletes were interested in it. And then it has this very strong effect on the mind, kind of like ayahuasca, where people report that they have this intense, introspective, altered state of consciousness, where they're able to have this accelerated processing of trauma and origins of addiction, and they feel like they can come out the other end. Now, those are all self-reports. This is nothing that's studied. Other things that are interesting interesting in terms of its history. There was a guy, Howard Lotsoff, is that his name? Um, In 1962, he was studying, he and his friends, they were all using heroin. They were taking ibogaine and they noticed decreased craving and withdrawal. And so that kind of spurred more of the study of its anti-addiction properties. So when you look at the pharmacology of ibogaine and why it might do that, why does it help with reducing craving from opioids specifically and withdrawal symptoms? And this is where you'll hear people talk about ibogaine. Like I've had, and I'm sure you have had too, Darlene, several patients come to you and ask about going to do ibogaine detox or ibogaine treatment when they've tried lots of other things for their opioid use disorder. It's probably because it has opioid agonist effects. It is a weak mu opioid agonist, and it is a strong kappa opioid agonist. Probably the kappa agonist effect is what causes some of the psychedelic and dissociative effects, because we know that salvia, the plant salvia that causes strong hallucinations and dissociation, also has a very similar 
uh, pharmacological effect. It's also a strong serotonin reuptake inhibitor acting on the 5-HT system, which again, similar to ayahuasca, which is probably responsible for the hallucinations and maybe the rapid effect on sensations of and subjective feelings of depression. That's why it's become kind of this compound of interest. It's interesting because it has very active metabolite called noribogaine, which sticks around in the body for actually months. So ibogaine itself is pretty short acting and the effects of taking ibogaine last for about four to six hours acutely. And we'll talk about what that looks like. But people who use ibogaine and people who advertise ibogaine, which again, none of this is legal in this country and not promoted because of the high risk of death, say that the effects of ibogaine can be long acting and for months and months. And that's probably because this active metabolite called noribogaine sticks around in the in the body for months and it can continue to act on the opioid system and the serotonin system. And when they've looked at people who have noribogaine in, in their bloodstream, they've found that they have decreased self-administration of opioids, cocaine, and alcohol. And again, like ayahuasca, there may be some neuroprotective and neuroregenerative, neuroregenerative properties related to this compound when they look at the effects on not BDNF, but GDNF, so glial cell-derived neurotrophic factor increase. Again, it's touted as a neurotropic factor. So yeah, let's talk about the effects of ibogaine, what actually happens when people use it, when they go to do an ibogaine uh, detox, which is typically what you'll see. You'll see centers in Mexico, Costa Rica, South America, Canada, where you can go and sign up for an ibogaine treatment or ibogaine detox. And you've had patients who've gone to do this, haven't you, Darlene? I mean, not not with your advice, but they've just gone to do it anyway. So, I mean, I had a patient and we don't know, he actually does not know what he was given. And this was in the U.S., so we hear about these, that these are all in Mexico where patients go, but he paid a lot of money. It was like $7,000. He just went for one day treatment. He says all he remembers from it was being terribly sick, like vomiting, vomiting. He remembers sitting in a hot tub. And I mean, you're right, Paula, it's probably maybe was something like Ibogaine because of the hypothermia. You know, he had kind of a shaman person that prayed over him. It didn't work. He was using again by Monday. He didn't really talk to me about any kind of hallucination experience. He said it was mostly, he, he just remembered the being really sick. I guess people are desperate and people are interested in, I mean, I'm playing, so playing devil's advocate today. Don't you love that? But people are, will do anything, right? And people want a quick fix too. I, I've had a couple of patients who've done Ibogaine or they've come back and told me that they've had an Ibogaine experience. And I've had kind of varied reports, but I did have one patient who, like your patient, didn't didn't have a great experience. But what the effect is, they have a four to six hour period of a kind of a dreamlike state, so a dissociative state, or it's otherwise known as the visionary phase. And during this phase,
ways people feel very introspective. Oh, excuse me. They, they're in this visionary or dreamlike phase, and then they enter what's called the introspective phase. During that phase, they have an altered state of consciousness, but they're in this kind of dreamlike state where they're very introspective and they're able to process their fears, their traumas, their significant life events, and they do this kind of accelerated healing. Now, that's what it's supposed to do. That's what people are promised. However, like you've mentioned, the medical effects are really nasty with Ibogaine. People get really, really ill. It initially causes ataxia to the point where you can't stand up. So people are, you know, sit down and so you don't fall over. And then it causes dry mouth and nausea and vomiting and can be can cause profound vomiting that lasts for hours. The vomiting can last for four to 12 hours. Some places will give ibogaine rectally, actually, as a suppository just to try and avoid the vomiting. It also causes hypothermia. As I'm wondering if your guy in the hot tub, I wonder if he was given ibogaine to try and offset that. Yeah, but and so the effects, the medical effects can last for four to 14 hours. And so you can have, I one of my patients told me that they had vomiting and dizziness for a whole day. They felt awful for a day. What is promised and what can happen too is they have this rapid, they go from using heavily to having no withdrawal symptoms. It's kind of like a rapid detox. And I use that in quotation marks because there's no such thing as that necessarily, but they have rapid relief of their opioid withdrawal symptoms. Now, not necessarily rapid relief of cravings and ongoing sobriety, but maybe it's something to do with the kappa agonism and the mu opioid agonism in combination. However, like we said, there is a high, high risk with this process. Yeah, it is interesting. And I mean, there's definitely clandestine clinics in the US and illegal use of Ibogaine here. But the DEA actively surveys this and one is watching for it. And you know, what we really need, like we've talked about this with ayahuasca and psychedelics, is we need more research. However, the difference with Ibogaine compared to maybe ayahuasca, and I'm not glorifying ayahuasca by any means or peyote, is that there was a study, NIDA began funding clinical trials of Ibogaine in the 90s because it has so much promise, right? People have the almost immediate resolution of opioid withdrawal, and then they have decreased cocaine and opioid cravings, decreased depression. However, the studies that were funded and started in the 1990s were were stopped because people were dying and they had a cohort of 33 patients who were treated with Ibogaine and one of the 33 patients, a young female died. I mean, that's not good odds that I'm not surprised they stopped the study. These effects, you know, may be promising, but it's a, it's a deadly, it's cardiotoxic. Basically, it's a cardiotoxic substance. Therein lies the warning that people who are undergoing Ibogaine treatment, there's a one in 300 known risk of of fatal cardiotoxicity. Oh, so the moment we, even though it might have some promise, the risk is way too high to to recommend it, and we need to watch and see what happens. With- and that's a very high risk. People, oh yeah. As human beings, we are terrible at estimating odds and risks. I mean, that's why the lottery does so well. But <laughs> like, if you're playing the lottery, a one in 300 is actually really good if you want to win. But you don't <sighs> want to win this one. Yeah, this you don't want terrible. to win this one. Exactly. So there's right now, we're just going to hopefully continue with evidence based treatments for opioid use disorder, especially the people who are most interested in Ibogaine tend to be folks with opioid use disorders. We'll continue to recommend evidence based treatment with the use of MOUD and psychosocial supports and not recommend 
ibogaine and will keep an eye on the field of psychedelic assisted treatment probably not with ibogaine, but with other compounds that may prove helpful in the treatment of addiction. And there's always interesting talks, if you're interested in this topic, from national and international conferences like ASAM, which is the American Society of Addiction Medicine, or CSAM, the California Society of Addiction Medicine, regarding you know what's emerging in these topics. But for now, definitely not recommending the use of these, especially self-administration or administration by non-spiritual, non-religious, religious ceremonial leaders and if you're not in that religion. For example, if you're not Native American participating in a peyote ceremony, we don't recommend the use of this. That's that's kind of my bottom line is we've just got to wait and watch for more research to emerge and be open-minded, but also do only what's best by our patients, do no harm. And in the meantime, there are lots of really interesting documentaries and films about psychedelics and ibogaine, ayahuasca, take them all with the, with what they're worth because people are very interested and passionate about this subject, just like they were and are about cannabis. And I think psychedelics are the new cannabis in terms of global and national interest and reduced perception of harm. We're seeing the fallout effect of increased cannabis use in society in terms of increased traffic accidents, increased suicidality, increased psychosis. And, you know, we may see benefits coming from psychedelics, but we also know that there are risks. And so for our population, we'll continue to watch. We'll advise them of the evidence. Maybe in 10 years, we'll look back at this episode and go, oh my goodness, we were so off. (laughs) Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on this show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.